Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Grab a seat. Daniel chapter 9 is where we're, where we're running to. As you, uh, as you flip over to find that, let me remind you of a couple things that were, that were mentioned, but I need to stir your affections for them um, a little bit more. Uh, first, man, it, it's been like a crazy day at our church. It's just been busy, um, a lot of stuff happening. So, so we need to give a, just a big hand to all kinds of people who are doing things from like culinary to hospitality to just people like owning stuff to... Um, I don't, I don't know who won cornhole. Did a, did a college group win cornhole? Apparently not. Great. A bunch of old people beat y'all. That's good. Um, we need to practice that. But uh, thank you guys for helping. I mean, it was set up and it was moving Operation Christmas Child boxes. And it was, it was so many things that college students, when they wander into our building, bring life in places uh, that is so desperately needed. So thank you guys. You, you, you don't understand um, I was in, this is going to be recorded in the podcast probably, but I was in uh, a, a business meeting and had somebody come up to me and was like, hey, how come they're not giving you guys more money? Which, which is a, a great statement, um, but we didn't ask for more money uh, was part of it. But, but it's just a cool thing because people see you and see the, the value that you bring as you just walk in obedience to Jesus and, and live out your giftedness. And so thank you. Thank you guys for serving in so many ways. I just have to say that it made my day easier. So, so thank you for that. Um, we're, we're still in Daniel chapter 9, which is about prayer. And so we're going to talk about that tonight, but I want to remind you of this if we don't mention it again here in a minute. Um, we are doing prayer gatherings on campus and here a couple times during the week. So if you miss those on social media or you're not on social media, then make this mental note or make this physical note so that you're reminded of this. We have a Tuesday at 9 o'clock uh, in the morning prayer gathering that happens at the MSC. Just look for Max or Cassidy. We have a... Yeah, great. Okay, we have a Thursday at normally 4 o'clock, but this week it's at 2. Okay, so we'll, we'll put that out on social media too, but um, it's at 2 o'clock this week at the Coffee Cup. Uh, that's John Andrew and Kara are leading that. And then uh, Nate and Sydney meet Friday at 8.30 at the 12th Man Statue. And so... Thank you. Um, he was excited about that. So show up at any of those or all of those, but I would encourage everyone in this room to pick one and make it a priority to jump into um, praying together. We send out, they, they come to us and it's like, hey, what can we be praying for? We'll send those things out. You may just be like praying through stuff on the prayer wall, uh, all kinds of things that are opportunities for you to be praying, but jump into that. It's, it's just of high value. You're going to see tonight as we lean into this. Okay, Daniel chapter 9. The, we're going to start in verse 20. We got through most of Daniel chapter 9 last week. And if I'm honest, as I was preparing for this, this, was, this is a chunk of scripture from 20 to, to wherever we land, uh, really to the end, that I was, I was trying to avoid. And, and as I look through uh, different commentaries, and I've, I'm, I'm reading right now like three different books about Daniel that other people are writing, nobody wants to deal with this. this it's just a difficult chunk, a difficult passage of scripture. Here's a couple things that uh, people wrote about this. Alistair Begg says this, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm worried about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. This is what we're jumping into. I, I do understand his position. I read this from Joyce Baldwin. The last four verses of Daniel 9 present the most difficult text in the book. Stephen Miller, are, he says that Daniel 9, 24 through 27 are four of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible. J.A. Montgomery says, uh, I think in a really unique way, the history of the exegesis of the 70 weeks of Daniel is the dismal swamp of the Old Testament criticism. Some of you are like, what in the world was he saying? The understanding of the 70 weeks that we're fixing to read about is the swamp of the Old Testament. It's where theologians go to die. And, and so know that this is, this is a challenging part of Scripture. This is without question um, difficult and it's difficult in the details, but I, I need us to hear this. 
Okay, as we zoom into this, this is challenging, and, and I promise you, this is going to be uh, challenging for you to kind of understand, and some of you may even check out, but I, I don't want you to miss the difficulty. As we look at the difficulty of the details, I don't want you to get distracted from the big picture that's really clear and really plain here. So we're going to land somewhere that I think is, is encouraging. It's just going to be a bumpy ride getting there, okay? So for any of you who uh, ever go and have to do something difficult, I'm thinking kind of on the athletic front, what do you do first? You, you better warm up. Uh, you, better, you better stretch. And so I'm going to need you to stand up right quick. This is for my energy, okay? And maybe for you in the room too. I need to bring a different kind of energy into the room right quick. I don't know what your go-to stretch is, uh, whatever that may be. Just don't hurt your neighbor, okay? Or hurt your neighbor if that's kind of your go-to. Get those things out of you. This is good. I judge you in your stretch. <laughs> that's, that's it right there. That's the calf stretch. That's good. Somebody's on the ground. You all right? You all right, Gabby? Okay. I didn't know if she fell down or not. Okay. This bottle's mainly liquid IV just to get me, get me through this. Okay, you good? When you're good, you can sit down. We'll just see, we'll see who's, who's still going, who the brave soul is. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, keep rocking it, bro. ET, you've had a long day. You've had a long couple days. You can keep stretching. It's fine. I'll see you. Thanks. I, ju I just needed you to move. Okay, so your energy coming back at this will help me um, maybe get through this a little bit better. Charles Spurgeon says this. The Lord God appointed a set time for the coming of his son into the world. Nothing was left to chance. Infinite wisdom dictated the hour at which the Messiah should be born and the moment at which he should be cut off. His advent and his work are the highest point of the purpose of God, the hinge of history, the center of providence, the crowning of the edifice of grace, and therefore peculiar care watched over every detail. Are you, are you getting the point of this? What God ordained in Jesus and when he came was not just some accidental timing thing. It's the center of his providence, the crowning of his grace. Once in the end of the world hath the Son of God appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and this is the event before which all other events must bow. The studious mind will be delighted to search out the reasons why the Messiah came not before and why he did not tarry till yet later ages. Some of us would be like, how come Jesus didn't show up now? It would be so much easier to believe in him, but at just the right time, God sent his son. Prophecies declared the date, but long before infallible wisdom had settled it for profoundest reasons. It was well that the Redeemer came it was well that he came in what scriptures call the fullness of time. Even in these last days, note again that the Lord told his people, somewhat darkly, but still with a fair measure of clearness, when the Christ would come. And this is what we're, this is what we're looking at here. So God has this specific plan in which the Messiah is going to come and deal de decisively once and for all with sin, though he will be executed in, in the process, and many troubles are going to precede the, the time in which he comes, and not only for, for Israel, but for others that lead up to the time when Jesus shows up. But God has decreed the how and the when and all of those things in which the end will come, not only when Jesus is going to show up the first time and deal with sin, but when he's going to come back the second time and ultimately deal with sin. And this is what we're talking about here. This is what makes this so important. And, and I, I'm pretty slow on the brakes to grab a hold of passages of Daniel and go, it's pointing directly to Jesus. This points directly to Jesus. We don't have to question it. This is what we're running to, but it's, it's sort of difficult to, to understand, but you got to grab a hold of this thing. God is in control. Okay, if you just want to write something, you're like, I'm going to be confused by this. And so over in the margin, starting verse 20, this is confusing, dot, 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 but God is in control. That's where you can land and where you can just kind of Hang out all the time. Maybe you were in group life this morning and, and Zach is scratching the surface of, of faith and kind of some works and kind of some grace and kind of all these things combined and your head's starting to spin and you're like, what do I do? You just go, God, you're in control. You're in control of all of this. It's just a safe place for us to land. He has a plan and his plan is going to come to pass just as he planned. He doesn't have to change anything. 
This is, this is God that we're talking about. So let's rest in this. Daniel's praying for his people. We saw that through the first half of nine. He, his prayer is one of deep repentance for himself and for his people. He understood Deuteronomy chapter 4. He understood Deuteronomy chapter 8, that the people were going to sin, that they were going to wander away from God, that they were going to be pushed into exile. It's promised in Jeremiah 25 and 29 that that exile was going to last for a certain period of time, exactly 70 years. Daniel takes those verses literally. He recognizes that the exile is soon to come to an end, and so he's praying for his people at this point. It, it really connects to what King Solomon is praying as he is um, dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and he's going, I know that our people are going to be sent into exile, but if our people would just humble themselves, if they would seek God in prayer and in repentance, then God would forgive and rescue and bring back. Daniel's just holding on to that. 500 years after Solomon is speaking that, he's going, this is what we must do. And so when you look at this, starting in verse 20, you can divide this into two sections. 20 through 23 are Daniel's prayers and, and kind of the result of those. And then 24 all the way down to the end and 27 is God's prophecy more clearly understood. The first part, pretty easy. 24, 25, 26, 27, really difficult. So um, I, I read, I told our leaders this earlier, that this is a hermeneutical roller coaster ride. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Just Google it right quick. Uh, you probably can't spell hermeneutical because I can't. But here's where we start. Starting in, in 9 verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of God, big dash. Right here, we just have to understand this truth. This is what Daniel is doing, and God is hearing the prayers of Daniel. And I just make this, this note. God hears the passionate prayers of his kids. God hears the passionate prayers of his children. And, and this is connected to a warning that I see in James 4.3 that you should probably memorize. Some of you probably already have it memorized. You just don't know that it is from there. There's where the half-brother of Jesus reminds us that you ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may yourself spend it on your pleasures. I think the ESV takes that word pleasures and makes it passions. The, the KJV says not passions but on your lusts. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You're asking so that you can get things that you can spend on the things that you lust after. That's what you're desiring for. And here we see something that God holds really, really highly in our prayers. Who we pray to, what we pray for, and how we pray are important. Who we pray to, what we pray for, and how we pray are all important to God. And Daniel provides this example, I would say an incredible example, of a man whose prayer life is met or is meeting all of the criteria that God is putting forth for us in our prayer life. God hears the passionate prayers of his children. Why? Because first and foremost, Daniel prays to God. Duh. But, but this is a good check for us. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God. Like sometimes you pray and don't think about who you're praying to. Sometimes you pray and ask for things that, that don't matter. Sometimes you're, you're stirred to just like loft some things up into the air, hoping they hit something. But your attention pointing your prayers to God, and when you go, God, and you think about who am I talking to? And it's important because, because your, your posture and your attitude is important. I talk to my wife differently than I talk to my kids. I, th I, talk, to, I talk to some of you differently than I talk to our pastoral staff. Amen. Some of them not. Some of them are just dorks. Um, sorry. But he prays to God. He's praying to the right person with the right posture. And this is something that should always characterize authentic praying. Praying to the right person with the right posture. And while he's praying... The angel Gabriel suddenly appears in the form of a man. Daniel notes it's the same angel that he saw in his first vision back in chapter 8. Gabriel means strong man of God, which is appropriate 
for this guy because he comes to lend support for Daniel in this state of what we see in verse 21 of extreme weariness. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man that I'd seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. I underline that because it's a weird thing. The evening offering hadn't taken place since the Jerusalem was destroyed. They're not doing the evening offering. That's a weird thing for me to say. They're not doing the evening offering while he's in Babylon. And this reminds us of something. Daniel's clock is still God's clock. It didn't matter where he was at. He was still thinking the way that God was thinking. His, his location doesn't change his thought process towards God. And so even in this, it's, it's been 70 years or so since this old dude was at home involved in the evening offering and he goes well he showed up about the time of the evening offering it's just the way he thinks it's a, a cool little side note that he throws in there and so this strong man of god shows up in his state of extreme weariness he highlights that it was about the time of the evening offering he's still on god's clock and what does he get from that he's talking to god and he gets the answer he gave me this explanation daniel I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I've come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. I love this. Gabriel says, as soon as you began to pray, an answer went out, and I've come to give you the answer. Why? Like, why does he do this? I asked this question, I'm like, what's the point? He comes to give it because you are a treasured possession, for you are treasured by God. Like, those who the Lord greatly loves, he hears. Those who are greatly loved are, are God honors. Daniel is precious in God's sight, and therefore so are his prayers to him. And this is the sweet part about being a child of God. Your prayers are precious to him. And, and even, we talked about this last week, Daniel had this, I mean, he has an angel show up, which is a pretty cool thing. Like if some of you were praying and then Gabriel's like, hey, I got you, just standing in your room, you would scream, one. And you're like, hey, strong man of God, uh, answer some questions for me. He, he has that going for him, but you know what you have? The great high priest sitting at the Father's right hand, who lives to intercede. Like, that's the card that you get to play. Your prayers are going to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Dad, listen to this. She's missing it, but let me tell you what she means. I can see her heart. He's so far off. He doesn't have words right now. You see the struggle, but I got him. Like, that's what we have. God answers his prayer. He sends him the, the angel Gabriel because he's treasured by God. And he says, Daniel, you should consider carefully the message and understand the vision because he's about to receive one of the greatest and most important visions and revelations in the Bible. And when you see it, it's challenging, but when you see it, you're going to understand what it's pushing us to. Okay, so here, here we go. He's going, hey, pay attention. Your readiness is needed. I need your eyes. That's what he's saying like the teacher's like, hey, focus box right here. That's what he's doing. Anybody have a focus box? Anybody got that? Like, I had a counselor that would scream it during the SATs. Focus. Like, that doesn't help. All right. This is what he's saying. Just focus. Sorry. Verse 24. 70 weeks. What does 70 weeks mean? Uh, you're like, 70 weeks. No. <laughs> Two words in, and you're, we're wrong already. My crud. Okay. 70 weeks literally translates to 77s. And the word seven is sort of like our dozen. It can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean seven hours. It can mean seven minutes. It can mean seven days. It can mean seven weeks. It can mean seven years. All of these things he's throwing out there. And so he's basically going 77s. And everyone that I read and anybody that I've looked at and other people that are writing about this know and they all echo that it is 70 periods of seven years. 70 weeks is 70 periods of seven years. And how long is that, math majors? 490 years. This is the start of this, and it's already, okay. So I just want you to, you could, don't mark it out. That's just mean to do in your Bible. Underline 70 weeks, and you can just go 70 periods of seven years or 
490 years. This is what he said. This is Gabriel's like, hey, I need you to understand this. 490 years. Now, in the original language, the Hebrews would have been like, hey, I understand this. I know what he's talking about. When he says this, I got it. Just a little bit more confusing to us. And so, 77s, right off the bat. And then he goes on. Are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, this is seven times seven and 62 times seven years. So you can read it this way. Until the anointed one, the ruler, will be 49 years and 62 weeks. Anybody got that quick, 62 times seven? Who? 434? Is that, is that right? Okay, good. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks plus the original seven, so now you're at 69 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with the flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And I love this. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Whew. Anybody confused? Okay, how many of you look at this and go, it's talking about Jesus? Okay, you just put your hand up. It's talking about Jesus. When it, when it says the anointed one, the ruler, that's just Jesus. But all the rest of it, you can go, I don't get it. I, I'm confused, and that's okay. Okay, it's just, it's just talking about Jesus. Let's hold on to that. Now, as I'm reading through this, there are four major views about these four verses that come out. I'm going to read to you all of them, and then kind of let's run after the one that I think makes the most sense. Now, I'm holding this loosely, okay, because I can't, I can't point anywhere in Scripture necessarily that 100% supports this. There's a reason why this is the Old Testament swamp. There's a reason why this is difficult, okay? But, but we can kind of explore what this is about and, and gain our understanding, okay? The first view is this. The 77s are literal years that run from about 605 B.C. It could be 586 B.C. It's not really that important, which they run from that to the reign of Antiochus, which is Epiphanes, in 167. The dates, however, in that view don't really work. They don't line up. It doesn't fit, fit very well with what Daniel's talking about here. And this is usually associated with very like liberal biblical scholars as they hold on to this. It's a, it's a view that I don't agree with. Throw it out. Okay, view two. The 77s are symbolic periods of time culminating in the first century A.D., this view also really struggles with the dates and the context of the prophecy, because if it's just 70 times 7, that's 490 years. They won't get to that period from where they're at. It, it puts them into a different place. View 3. The 77s are symbolic periods of time ending with the second coming of Christ. It's close. The 77s are a prophecy of church history, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, from Cyrus's decree in 538 B.C. until the return of Christ at the end of the age. This is good, but it's not completely convincing because of this one. The 77s are literal years that end with Christ's second coming, but also include the first coming. And there is an important prophetic gap in the 69th and 70th week. And I'll explain that to you. The first 69 weeks are now in the past. The, climate, the climactic 70th week is still in the future. And, and I read this, Stephen Miller, he, he wrote this book on Daniel. He says this, the first seven sevens, it's 49 years, stick with me if you need to write them down. The first seven sevens commence with the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now hold on to that. The command to rebuild Jerusalem takes place in two different places in the book of Ezra, which is about 457 B.C., or the decree to Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah in 445 B.C. And then it terminates with the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is 49 years later, which would be in 409 B.C., 
or in 396. Okay? So that's the first seven that we see in here. It says 70 weeks are decreed. That's 70 times 7. About your people, your holy city. The rebellion's coming to an end. And then verse 25, no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks, that's the first, to rebuild, and then 62 weeks. So we have 49 years to rebuild, and then that leaves you with that second half, that 62 weeks, which is 434 years that extend from when Jerusalem was rebuilt until Christ comes. And if, if you do the math of that, so we would say about 408 B.C. is when Jerusalem is rebuilt. And then you add 434 years to that. It takes you to about A.D. 26. And A.D. 26 is when Jesus was baptized. It's the exact time frame. And so in his prophecy, he's going from when Jerusalem is rebuilt, there's going to be this time frame of 62 periods of seven years, and that hits exactly when Jesus was baptized. And that Jesus is baptized, there comes a spirit descending like a dove, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, his ministry starts at that point. And so this is the, the time frame that he lays out there, which is pretty, it's a pretty unbelievable thought, as Jesus presents himself to the people as Messiah. Here I am. Father speaks, Holy Spirit comes down, all of that happens. And so the 70th week at this point is separated from those 69 weeks in a, in a period that not only includes the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Antichrist at the end of the age. And so we have Titus, the Roman general, here's some history, he's a forerunner, he's the type of Antichrist that's kind of prophecy he's speaking about, destroys Jerusalem in AD 70, it foreshadows the end time persecution that's going to exceed anything that the world has ever known, this, this, this pause that's happening. I believe this is the understanding of Jesus according to his teaching in the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew 24, you can turn over there if you want, but remember that word that I talked about, Matthew 24, 15, he says this, this is Jesus. So when you see the abomination of desolation is back, Somebody should get that tattoo. All right, not me, but get it. Let me know. Spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. <laughs> Let the reader understand. If you have that in your Bible, I love that. Verse 16. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on his housetop must not come down to get the things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant woman and the nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days are cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. This is part of God's plan. And so Daniel speaks about this abomination of desolation, and Jesus quotes it. And he goes, hey, when I leave, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be like anything that you've ever seen before. And this is that pause in between the 69th week and the 70th week when he comes back. And we don't know how long that is. We're just hanging out in there. And some of you, your mind's going, John, this hurts. And it should, because this is God's plan, not ours. It should be difficult for us to grasp. And so let's, let's look at these really quick. Let's kind of run through these and see what God is doing in these four verses now that you kind of understand the timeline and, and what it's pushing us towards and more so like how we should be praying. Okay, so starting in verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city, to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. What this is saying, just in short, if you want to make a note, is that in the right time, whenever God wants to, in his time, God's going to deal with sin. In his time, God is going to deal with sin. 77s are decreed to your people, and this is what you're going to get. God's going to deal with sin. And I, and I love the use of seven. Again, we, I talk about this often. If you, if you listen to us just in conversation, if you listen to the podcast, even in teaching stuff, we like to go back to the garden as often as we can. And so sevens are important in that. And, and Robert Fall says this, behind all biblical uses of seven lies the seven days of creation. Thus, the return from exile is not simply a new exodus, but a new creation. And it foreshadows the end time when we get new creation. 
These sevens are important. And so dur- during this seven sevens, six things are going to happen that are just in verse 24. The rebellion is going to be finished. The end of sin is going to be made. Like read, To put a stop to sin, atonement for iniquity is going to take place. Everlasting righteousness is going to be brought in. I, this, should, this should get you all excited. More than stretching, you're ready to run the race. Everlasting righteousness is brought in. Vision and prophecy are, are sealed up in the most holy place, or the Holy One is anointed. Anyone with any kind of limited understanding of Scripture, when I asked you the question earlier, you go, this is talking about Jesus, and this is talking about what he's going to do for us, or now for us, what he did for us. This is all this is screaming. And, and I love this, because his atoning sacrifice is God's final word for us, and it ushers in this everlasting righteousness through the anointing of the Holy One, which is the most holy place. And, and maybe it's a future temple that we read about in Ezekiel uh, 40 and beyond. Maybe it is talking about Jesus who constitute the new, he, he's the new temple in his own body, the church. You see that all throughout the New Testament. Regardless of what this is talking about, sin is going to come to an end. The anointed ruler and his work of atonement is going to be put on display for everybody to see it. This is like the amen in a bunch of verses. You're just going, I don't get it. I don't get it. But this is what Jesus is going to do. Break it up. Brings the rebellion to an end. Puts a stop to sin. That's an amen. And he atones for our iniquity. Amen. Brings in everlasting righteousness. Finally, seals up vision and prophecy. We don't need it anymore. And anoints the holy place. This is what he does right there. At just the right time, God is going to deal with sin. It should, should push us to pray differently. Like we know what's going to happen. And when it happens, those that are outside of this, it's too late. we got to know that God's going to deal with sin. And all of these are like yes and amen and good news for us. It should get you excited, except for your thoughts about lost people. And it should break your heart. Because what we get, they miss. And it should spur your mission. He brings sin to an end, and then what does he do? In his time, God sends Jesus. Verse 25. No one understand this. Like I don't, but help me. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, seven weeks, 62 weeks. It will, it will be rebuilt with the plaza and the moat, but in difficult times. Then after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. This is talking about his death. So we have the 69 weeks that lead to like when Jesus is on the scene and then he dies and we hit pause. He'll be cut off and we'll have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. In his timing, God sends Jesus. And Daniel, in these two verses, it, it focuses on three events that are going to take place during the 70 times seven years. The first, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. We see that in verse 25. The second is the coming and the death of Jesus. We see that in verse 26. And the third is the persecution promised from the Antichrist, which is the coming ruler of the people. And, and then in verse 27, his defeat. All of these things are going to happen during these 490 years. In verse 25, Daniel is told to know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince will be 49 years. And the, the going out of the word or the issuing of a decree is probably the reference uh, to the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra in 457. Hey, this is that word. Um, and even though we don't have to like deep dive into this to understand it, um, because you could compare it to Nehemiah and both of those dates could kind of work. Cause if you go a little bit later to Nehemiah and you, you deal with his dates, then it pushes you closer to the death of Jesus. And so as you, as you contend with those, I, I kind of like the Ezra one and I can tell you about it on a secondary note if you want, we don't have time. Um, but the temple, the city, all of that's going to be rebuilt. Trouble is going to accompany the rebuilding every step of the way. You've probably read the story. If not, go read it. Especially during that 49 years, Nehemiah is like, hey, they got a shovel in one hand and a sword in another. This is how they're fighting during the building of the wall. It's just a challenge. 
And then verse 26 informs us that after those 62 weeks, plus the, the prior seven, getting confused, 483 years, then the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And so if the Ezra date, the 457 B.C. date is correct, then again, that brings us to the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of his public ministry. And this is an incredible accuracy. And then sometime after that, the Messiah is cut off and he's left with nothing. He, it's Isaiah 53.8. He is cut off from the land of the living, is what he's talking about. He's dead. And it's summarized best by this. By whatever set of calculations one makes, the point is that by the end of the 69 weeks of years, the great work of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for sin should be completed. This is what it's pointing us to. No matter what calculations we use, no matter how much you know, hermeneutical gymnastics we do to get to this point, you just have to know the end. That the work of the atonement is done by what Jesus did. It's complete. And so God is going to deal with sin, and he deals with sin by sending Jesus at just the right time. And then we see this. In God's timing, he judges people. In God's timing, he judges people. So the Messiah has been rejected. Judgment follows in what Gabriel calls the people of the coming ruler. And so I read this, and I think, well, the Romans and General Titus um, were kind of the typical people of this prophecy. They destroy the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. The end of Israel indeed was, was like a flood. It was a tragic and horrible war for them. The desolations are decreed, but we know this, like this is not the end. There, there is a common, uh, a common prophetic Gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And Robert, Robert Gundry says it this way, the possibility of gap between the 69th and the 70th week is established by the well-accepted Old Testament phenomenon of prophetic perspective, in which gaps such as that between the first and the second advents were not perceived. And so this, this fits really clearly with the biblical narrative in which the Messiah is cut off shortly after the end of the 69th week. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And then we see this, this pause all the way up until the 70th week. And so he's going to deal with sin. He's going to judge. But then in the right time, he will also destroy his enemies. This is what verse 27 deals with. He will make a firm covenant. With many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. In the last part of this period of history, the coming of God's kingdom in its full and glorious state, it begins with this firm covenant with many for one week. And then it ends with their destruction. And I love that phase. The, I'm going to say it again. The abomination of desolation will be on the wing of a temple. It most likely speaks to the spreading of the abominations of idolatry towards the Antichrist and that type of worship. And God stops it. And in the process, he pours out his judgment on those people and his wrath on the Antichrist. And Stephen Miller in the same book, as he handles these difficult verses, says this. The Antichrist's incredible atrocities against his fellow human beings and his attacks upon God himself will include even the idolatrous claim that he is a deity with an attempt at forced worship of himself. So the one who causes this desolation is talking, of course, about the Antichrist, who's going to forbid our worship, thereby making the temple area empty, the church empty, and rather than being an object that, that desolates in this context, it appears that the Antichrist in this passage, it's he who desolates, this person's terrible atrocities, his abominations, as this says, and the fact that he causes the temple to be desolate results in the judgment announced in the latter part of this verse. You understand, he's, he's trying to steal God's worship. It's the thing that has Satan kicked out of heaven in the first place. 
I want to get to your level. I want to worship the same way that, uh, I want to be worshiped the same way that everyone's worshiping you. I can get up there. And he's like, no, you can't. You go down there. This is the same thing. He, He starts to still worship and the churches are empty at this point. And this is part of God's judgment poured out on him. This is a terrible period in the world's history. But the Lord has decreed that these atrocities will not continue forever. The antichrist wickedness that we see here only lasts until the end that is decreed and then poured out. This word poured out, like, like I love this when you look at it, it, it draws this picture of the flood of judgment that will overtake the antichrist. The, the, the word on him literally means like on the desolating one, the reference to himself, which He's the one that caused the temple to be desolate, and then he's swept away, and he is no more. He, at that point, is then desolate. The final ruler at this point exalts himself, imposes his authority, forbids true worship, instigates this idolatrous worship, and runs into the meat grinder of God's decree. I'm going to stop all of this, and in his function runs right into God's prophesied destruction of him. Like, I love this. The enemy's been defeated, and even in that, stupidly runs into the end. And God's going, the thing that's going to get you destroyed is when you make these things desolate, and it will be your end. This is what he's talking about here. God is predetermined, and God is on time, and he is on target and he is certain and all of these things will happen and you're like this is a lot and I agree with you that it's a lot and it's going to be a lot to walk through and there's part of me that kind of hopes that it happens while I'm on this planet there's kind of me that because then maybe my my boys won't live through some difficult things and I just kind of want to see it take place but the other side of me gets a little discouraged because I know a lot of us are just gonna have to live through these periods I'm not saying that the end time is near. I kind of hope it is, but I'd never get to play that card. Um, But what I am saying is that getting to the end time is going to be difficult. Like if this, this is true and it's true, then the things that we have to walk through that the abomination of desolation is gonna lead us to are going to be really, really challenging. And, And so I look at this and I go, where's our hope? How should we be praying? What, what should this stir us towards? Because Daniel sees from Jeremiah's prophecy that their exile is going to last 70 years. And so he prays this prayer of repentance for himself and for the nation. He's, he's ready for the people to run back home. He knows the end. And so he's like, God, would you, would you bring about the end? He's pleading for God to act mercifully on their behalf by rescuing their people from sin And from this exile and taking them back home, and God answers by sending Gabriel with this revelation. And Gabriel tells Daniel that the exile is not going to last 70 years. It's going to last 490 years. And Daniel's like, bro, I'm old. What what does this actually do for me? He's like, hey, it's going to be 490 years, and this exile is not going to end until the Messiah comes and the Messiah is crucified and that's when sin is finally dealt with and righteousness is brought in and then after that final week of human history, the Antichrist is going to come and, and as, he, as he shows up, he brings about this great tribulation and he desecrates the holy city, but he's going to be defeated. We saw it in Daniel chapter 7. We see it in Daniel chapter 9. There is this, what Paul does often, is there's this already but not yet prophecy that we're seeing in Daniel that, that for me is, is, is encouraging and discouraging all at the same time because, because I want it. I want that promise, and we know the truth in it, but it's just not here yet. And so there's this significant uh, mystery that we walk in. There's these divine certainties that we can all agree on, but we're just sitting in that final week between 69 and 70, just waiting for all of this to come true. We have these promises that are yes and amen in Christ, but, but what do we do with it? If this text is predicting the coming Messiah who's going to abolish sin, who is going to establish everlasting righteousness by being cut off, put to death on a Roman cross, 
He's going to come back exactly when God has decreed or promised that he would, and it's going to be the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in Scripture come to life. We see these things coming alive already, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, his death. And even as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24, these events are the anticipation of the end of evil and what is to come. The Antichrist is going to persecute God's people. I'm sorry. It's going to devastate God's land. I hate that. But the end for him is going to come like a flood when the anointed ruler returns and destroys him. This is, this is our hope. And all who long for and love the anointed ruler, King Jesus, will get to experience this in all of its fullness. Not only the salvation that it brings, but the blessings that come along with that. We get to see this. And so until then, what do we do? We work and we wait. You serve and, and you hope that there's this, there's this plan that's in place. There's this, this clock that's ticking, and I don't know when the alarm's going to go off, but there's this clock that's ticking. And when it happens, we, we sit in this, this promise or this hope that the anointed one is on the way. But until then, we get to make war. This is about the only way that I can describe it. We just get to make war. And so as, as the band comes up and we get to close in song, here, here's the thought. With our right understanding, and some of you are like, I'm not there yet. I don't have this right understanding. Take the details of a lot of stuff that was just laid out before you, and we're going to set them over here for a second. Here, here's the deal. Jesus had to come to deal with sin. In dealing with sin, he's ultimately cut off for a period, and then he's going to come back. And in that, there's going to be the, the fulfillment, the completion of righteousness. All of that stuff is thrown away. We are made whole again. You get new heaven, new earth, new body, all of those things. And then the, the enemy, the ruler, the, the prince of the power of the air, whatever you want to call him, this, even the Antichrist, if you want to go that direction, will be destroyed. And, and this is our hope. And so God, at just the right time, brings Jesus. God, at just the right time, is going to bring judgment. God, at just the right time, is going to ultimately deal with sin. And in that, your motivation should be a couple things. Like, how are you pursuing God in that understanding so that you're ready? And then out of that pursuit of God through his word, how is that overflowing into the lives of other people? How, how is that overflowing into the lives of believers that, that get to walk in the overflow of your life? And how is that overflowing into the lives of unbelievers? Because hear me, here's a really hard challenge, and it's a hard challenge for me. If you understand this, not, not fully, not, I don't get it, okay? I don't understand all the seven times sevens and all of this stuff. I don't understand the pause. I don't understand the, the waiting period that they're talking about here. But I, but I do understand the end. The anointed king is going to come back. He's going to make all things right. And those that are outside of that promise live eternally separated from that. And so even with just an elementary understanding of this, which is all that you need, you should live your life in a way that other people are affected by this. And so if you just zoom out for a second, you go, I'm glad that I'm growing in my understanding of the Bible. I'm glad that I have my people, the church. I'm glad that this is happening. But it doesn't go outside of these walls into the lives of unbeliever, unbelievers. You're missing it. So, so we talk about this every so often, but probably not enough. Like, who are those people in your life? Like, like there's people in this room that need to hear this. There's, there's got to be lost people in this room that are hearing this and going, man, that's a lot. Man, God could have made that clear. Man, Daniel's confusing. Amen. Wait till you start reading Paul. Those things are challenging. Thankfully, it's the Holy Spirit that brings understanding. So we're praying that for you tonight. But for believers in this room... Like if all you know is to your left and your right and the people that you hang out with and you're just being encouraged in your faith and that, like that has to happen. We're all about community. That's got to echo into lost spaces. And so who are those people? I got a list of five people on my phone all the time that I'm just praying for. And it should be more than that, but I'm just like, that's all I can grasp. And these, these, are, these are guys in my life that don't know Jesus. 
These are guys in my life that need to be rescued from eternity separated from him. These are guys in my life that when I understand this, it stirs me to pray for them, not to like grab a commentary and be like, I don't understand the 70 times seven. It's, I understand that the anointed one is gonna come back and make all things right. And the people that are not underneath the umbrella of Christ's forgiveness are cast. And I don't want that. So who are those people in your life? And this is what this moment's going to be. One, maybe you're in this room and you're like, I, I have no relationship with Jesus. I gotta make that right. There's gonna be people in the back, some of our prayer team and maybe some of our Bible study leaders are just gonna, gonna spread out and you can, you can head that direction and just ask that question. But, but for the rest of us in here, I'm just begging the Holy Spirit to stir your affections for lost people. Like, like I love, and we're called to do this. Like I love the fact that we get to gather together weekly with college students and throw food into your face and then feed you in this way and worship and be encouraged and hang out for a couple hours together on Sunday night. Like it's commanded by the Bible and it's needed, but it doesn't stop here. Like there should be an echo of your life into lost spaces that people are just wandering in here and following you. And you're going, I I need to introduce my friend to you that just met Jesus. I need to introduce my friend to you who is trying to figure out this Jesus. I need to introduce my friend to you who is as lost as can be and I'm praying for his or her salvation and but I have a relationship with them that's starting based off of this. And so you need to just ask God to reveal those people to you. And you may already know them and you need to be crying out to the Lord for their salvation and it starts tonight. So grab some people, maybe head to the back. We, we did this last week. This room is an altar. There's nothing magical up here per se, except for the fact that you can just come up here and pray. And it's, it's kind of like running before God. You can do that. Or head to another space in this room and just spend some time with the Lord. And we're going to worship. You don't have to sing when other people are singing. Okay, it's not a command. Be encouraged by those songs and run after the Lord in prayer. Let's do some work, trying to understand this maybe a little bit more, but really being stirred for the lostness of our community. Let me pray for you, and then you move in that direction. God, you're, you're good, and you do good. And, and, like, we thank you for salvation that echoes in the lives of so many people. Like, I don't deserve that. There's nothing in me that deserve to be saved by you outside of your good grace in my life. And so I don't get to walk on some elitist platform that look what God did for me, but instead I need to echo that story out into the world, and all of us need to be declaring that loudly. And so even in spots where we don't understand, we, we read four verses in Daniel and we get more confused than when we came in. We can sit in this understanding that you sent the anointed one to deal with sin, to bring about righteousness, to make all things new. And he conquered, he accomplished the first part and we're waiting for the second part. So, so selfishly, I'm like, come Lord Jesus. But in my love for people, there's part of me that says, hold on because there's lost people in our community. There's lost people on my street. There's lost people on the disc golf course. There's lost people in classrooms. There's, there's lost people in my dorm. There's lost people in our apartments. There's, there's a lostness that, that if we actually love people, we'd be like, hold on just a second, not yet. Like we gotta, we're gonna make sure that they know. And so would you stir our hearts for that? God, thank you for a warning. Thank you for an understanding that you're coming back. May we do the work functioning in a hope and in a grace, not necessarily in a full understanding of all things, but knowing that you are going to come back and longing to share that with people. Would you stir our hearts towards that? Bring people to mind, encourage us to write them down, and then to do the work by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.